Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636 with Kevin Gadet, Alyssa Freeman, and Lindsay Broadhead. Uh, as we were joking just before the break, you know, uh, we've nary talked about the teacher strikes, the rotating strikes that have now been ratcheted up with intensity and frequency. And uh, anyway, here we go. Let's get into it because the elementary teachers say uh, as of next week, they're going to hold province-wide one-day strikes in addition to cherry-picking certain boards. And uh, so you might have a double whammy in any given week, I believe, in the Toronto board. That's going to happen next week with uh, two days at the elementary level being off for strikes. You know, as they increase the intensity or frequency here, uh, I'm wondering about the effect it's going to have primarily on parents because it's disruptive to their lives. But is their anger then going to be directed towards the government or would that be towards the unions? How do you sense it, Lindsay? Well, so far, um, the teachers have done very well at getting public sentiment, I think, and uh, support from a communications point of view, and I, I'd be curious to hear from my colleagues here on this as well, but I think it was a miss for the teachers to uh, say that they weren't going to do the grading and the comments. And I now think it's potentially a miss um, when they've included uh, teachers within hospital care, only because these are things that could be mitigated in other ways. And the teachers may be losing that edge of approval with um, the major segments of, of, of society, frankly. Um, so I do think uh, if they cruise as they are going to go, uh, the, the blame will be still pointed towards Lecce and the government. Uh, and it's still on the government to right-size the, the issue and the negotiations. However, if the teachers uh, get too brazen and emboldened further, uh, it could flip. When you talk about it being a miss, and I know, Kevin, you uh, were in high dudgeon talking about... You can about, predict where I'm going to go. Well, yeah, well, yeah. The, well, the report cards, I wanted to get to that again, because I thought, you know, you exhibited a, an inordinate passion when it came to... Uh, vilif- inordinate? Yeah, vilifying the teacher. Well, beyond your usual stuff, I mean. Uh, <laughs> Uncommon. Lindsay, I mean, are you d- talking about this uh, from the point of view of a strategist, or you got your ear to the ground and you're actually hearing some rumblings uh, amongst parents, parent groups, and that kind of thing, that they're disaffected by... Look, I'm a parent. A lot of people are parents. Uh, yes, there's inconveniences. Um, I personally sit on the side of politics that are in support of teachers. Um, I, I, you know, and we can go on about that forever. But the uh, you lose your edge uh, from a communications point of view if you start to take advantage, or if there's perceptions, more importantly, that you're starting to take advantage. To date, I think the teachers uh, in the unions have done very well because they have important issues on their side other than salary, right? So they have done very well at aligning themselves with parents and the issues that parents care about. Um, But as I said before, uh, when you start to chip away at what your core argument is or what your core issues are and you confuse the public uh, by adding in these other elements, that's when you could potentially uh, lose your support. 
that brings us to Kevin Gadette. I mean, on the report card thing, Lindsay said, and I think correctly, that that was a miss on the part of the teachers that, you know, they're handing off to the principals and the principals can't complete it and the Toronto board doesn't send anything home. And the progress of your kids in school is one of the fundamental things that a parent uh, wants to know. That's uh, an information gap that they're fostering upon the parents here. So, Kevin, I mean, maybe you want to re- repeat what you said a couple of weeks ago that that was... Well, I'm, I'm probably calmer today than it was a couple of oh, weeks come ago. Come on, Kevin, let's go. Um, because <laughs> Bring it back. I, Bring it back. I, I, I remember the day we got it was the exact same day I received the notice from the TDSB telling me I wasn't getting... My, my daughter wasn't getting a report card. So they, they don't get fall report cards anymore. They get progress reports, which basically are useless. And now we don't get one in February. So... There's the earliest prospect of a report card for my daughter. Literally, is the end of the school year. That'll be the first time we get a, prog- you know, a meaningful report card on my child. Will be at the end of the school year, and if there is anything a teacher is supposed to do, a school system is supposed to deliver, aside from the education inherently, it's reporting on that education, and they're failing in that duty. Uh, and and now, if the government handled this properly, I think there's a tactic the government can undertake, which is now we have a choice because. The coronavirus, SARS blew the provincial budget out of the water. It just did. It cost, it cost billions of extra. There's no reason to believe this is going to be any different, if not worse. And now that government's going to have a choice between giving more money to greedy teachers or looking after your health care. Now, take that as a binary decision. Well, yeah, there was another one I would add to the list last week when you had Mayor Brown up in Brampton claiming that there were people dying in the hallways, and it was well documented. You know, the uh, data that came out through the CBC about uh, the number of hospitals in the GTA, five, I guess, of the major hospitals were more than 100% capacity for like six months of the year. Some In some cases, I guess it was a full year, and uh, hallway medicine, people dying in the hallways when you've got teachers angling and won't back off on a 2% increase, and they're making that a sticking point. Meanwhile, people dying in the hallways because we can't address the needs, the immediate needs in triage. I don't think there's a choice there for a lot of people. I canvassed them on the air, and they were all calling, saying health care is the priority here. So, I mean, are the teachers in a way, and again pushing uh, the envelope further here with the strikes now, and uh, it's going on and on and on, maybe they're starting to lose popular support, Alyssa. I would. I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that Lindsay uh, brought up a great point in that, you know, not handing out report cards sort of became a line in the sand. And, you know, their whole narrative from the very beginning has been, it's all about the children, it's all about the children. Well, this is not about the children. And taking extra days a week in in order to have a strike is not about the children. And when you start talking to parents, and I have been talking to parents, my daughter isn't in the system anymore, but it's basically, they're starting Starting from having uh, coming out with such a strong grassroots campaign, which teachers and unions can do very, very well, I think that their support is eroding. I don't think that their messaging, you know, yes, you have to have your best practice key messages, but sometimes you have to adjust as that, you know, the tide changes or to prevent the tide from changing. And I think the unions have been generally tone deaf on that on that end. So I think that uh, definitely we're going to see some erosion of support, and this definitely could work. Um, and and if they do take on that message track, uh, Kevin, that you that you've just said, well, will start to thinking about you know healthcare over other so-called or other priorities. Um, that could be a very powerful narrative. Yeah, far be it for me to give uh, Ford's government uh, communications counsel. <laughs> I know I'm being really careful here, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, Lecce has an opportunity. If if they were smart, they'd actually they'd totally drive this home. Yep.
sooner rather than later? Absolutely. I mean, he's been doing the talk show circuit, you know, from morning till night uh, most days. But he he has been, with the exception of today, a little bit quiet. I think he needs to ramp that up and hit this home while people are starting to really worry about health care. Or the teachers have to flip, actually. Whoever takes the lead on this, I think, is going to win. And I can't see the teachers flipping. They have just been resolute in every interview that they've done with the same narrative. Doug Ford the other day saying, I'm not going to back off the 1%. They're not going to get two. There's a genuine timeline budget preparation impact related to this tactics tactic, which just is the budget's due in, in March, and we're at the end of January. They're in the process of having to put the budget to bed, and they are very likely going to put in this budget, I would suspect. I have no reason to, I have no inside knowledge. I'm just guessing that there's going to be a contingent line item for health care, that there's going to be a, a contingent line of more than nine zeros somewhere, some billion, I mean, maybe they're wrong, maybe they won't, and they'll just overspend it if, if, if this virus becomes a bigger problem. But I would think they'd put a contingency in. And now, so they have to make that decision. And that's part of the bargaining plan when they're in tomorrow or whenever it is they've agreed to go back to the table. The yeah, government's going to have a table the issue of we can't afford it, and here's why, because we're putting a, what, one, two, three billion dollar contingency fund in for health care based on this virus problem. Yeah, my understanding is the mediators call them back tomorrow. Uh, can we touch on something else that looks like an irreconcilable issue or problem? Uh, the story between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the Middle East has been, well, I don't know, uh, going on from time immemorial, it seems. But Donald Trump today tabled his Israeli uh, Middle East peace plan. He says it's a win-win for both sides. The Palestinians are grousing, saying they were never actually... Uh, consulted on any of that. They don't like the idea that, uh, for example, the settlements, there'd be a a moratorium on these settlements for four years and who knows what in the West Bank. Uh, Let me ask you, Alyssa, first and foremost, I mean, is there any chance that there could ever be in our lifetimes a lasting peace between these two parties? It's really hard to say. I mean, I'm I'm ever the optimist, but in this case, uh, my feeling is no. There are people who do have, um, who really do want peace to happen, but I think that there's just too many different factions uh, to to actually make this happen. Uh, And one of the things that I think concerns me about this is that, you know, the Palestinians are going to get together, and but they're also saying, well, let's get together with Hamas. Let's get together with these people. And we know that Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel. So as soon as you start bringing in really extremist groups, I have to think that there's no good ending to this. And and then, you know, there's the other side. So who put together the plan? Jared Kushner. I don't know. Is he a big Middle East all of a sudden the past three years guru? I don't know about that. Not to include Palestinians, or maybe they did include some of the other Arab countries in some of their discussions. We don't know. So to answer your question, not in the near future do I see any potential for peace. All right. Jared but it Kushner. Does, but, it does, but it does play to his base. Right. I wouldn't be as dismissive as you are of Jared Kushner. He's Jewish and he knows real estate. There you go. <laughs> Far be it from me to say. The Palestine Trump Hotel. I think I have to Yeah. Go. You know, if Trump promises him something like that, build him a hotel and, uh, yeah. Everybody will be happy. Who cares about a settlement? Stay at the Trump Putin's Hotel. a part owner, I guess. Well, that's what Trump says. It's a win-win for both sides, but that's being dismissed readily by the Palestinians, so I don't know. I yeah, mean, he says it's a win-win for both sides, all three of them, right? Right. Well, the thing is that uh, if you're not consulting the Palestinians, who are obviously stakeholders in the whole equation, it's dead on arrival. Lindsay, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, this is ridiculous. Netanyahu's on counts of fraud right now. He's up for counts of fraud. Trump's being impeached. I, I think it's the highest level of arrogance for the U.S. to be the uh, arbiter of this 
um, at all. So to answer your original question, can there be peace? I, I, possibly. I, I mean, <laughs> Are who you knows? a betting person? Well, who knows? But it, it, like any uh, uh, conflict like this, both sides have to have uh, leadership that is actually willing to negotiate. And it just doesn't we're not there and currently. The t- and we're not, not necessarily there. putting towards a plan that is really great for the Middle East, but is a great distraction for both of them, actually. And one's the t- being impeached and one's up on, on charges. And the, t- the, time, the timing is flat in the sense that it's the day after the 75th, 75th anniversary yeah. of the commemoration of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, not that the Palestinians are responsible for that, but the, the Jewish people were obviously... Right. Uh, well, it was obviously bad for them, you know, if it was Nazi Germany, but but still, it, it's it, the timing of it is really strange to me. You know, the well, that's what Alyssa and Lindsay were talking about, because uh, Trump facing impeachment now and uh, his defense in the Senate over the last three days, uh, trying to dismiss everything that the Dems had done by way of uh, suggesting that, you know, uh, he has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Now they say the wild card in all of this is John Bolton, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the former, uh, I guess, uh, whatever his role was there. Uh, and he used to be a regular on this program back in the day. But here's my question. I mean, I just thought this uh, out of a point of interest because Prince Andrew now is, uh, he's gone to ground. He's not complying to uh, testify on this uh, sex trafficking ring with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. He's gone to ground. He did say back in November that he would actually uh, help out in any way that he could. And then there's Hunter Biden, who's sort of central to the Republican defense, saying this is what Trump was investigating or wanted to be investigated in Ukraine. Hunter Biden, you know, Joe Biden's kid, uh, gets this plum gig, doesn't know anything about the oil industry, doesn't speak the lingo, yet he's making uh, well into six figures. So something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Who would you rather hear testify around the horn very quickly? And then we'll get back to others. Prince Andrew, John Bolton or Hunter Biden? Lindsay? The Lindsay that sits on a beach would like to hear from Prince Andrew, um, <laughs> just because I think that's the the juiciest topic. Yeah, but no, I, I think that's, that's the Instagram Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, that's the Instagram. That's right. The the LinkedIn Lindsay would choose uh, John Bolton. I think just because all three of them have been litigated in the public already. We already we the collective public already have a point of view on each of them. I think Bolton's the only one that actually has a uh, the results of his testimony are could actually affect the public in a very real way, whereas the other two, I just, I don't care. Okay. How about you, Kevin? You want to hear from Hunter Biden, don't you? Not, I actually don't really want to hear from any of them. On oh. any, you know, <laughs> You're I, no I know fun. That's disappointing. It kind of Sorry. defeats the purpose of the program, Kevin. All right. I, well, <laughs> then, then, then the prince, because I'm actually more concerned about the, uh, the abuse towards women that, you know, the rest of it is, is emoluments inside politics crap in the swamp, and they're all you know, pox in all their houses to me. Um, but the stuff with the prince is concerning. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that women will be treated that way and, and, and in the volume of which the, that it was undertaken seems extremely problematic to me. All right. Alyssa? Pop culture Alyssa. Prince Andrew all the way. Wow. Absolutely. Really? But... um, Then we can ask Megan what she thinks. Media expert. Well, she was just the distraction up until this point. So now we're back to the prince. We can talk about that too. But but, uh, I'm also interested in John Bolton because he's taking a very interesting strategy here. You know, he's not being allowed to testify, but he's thinking... "Mm -hmm." 
I don't need to be asked to testify. I think I'll just leak the manuscript of my book and let that sit in the public in the court of public opinion because it doesn't account it doesn't count towards the trial at all because it's not being brought into official testimony. But this whole strategy of leaking it to various reporters, obviously at the New York Times, etc., I think is kind of brilliant and, and really gives you pause. Although no irony to uh, this whole impeachment scenario and the emoluments issue in play that a, a key perspective witness uh, is managing his testimony in a way to actually increase book sales to make money off it. There's no irony to that at all, is there? Well, well mm, you know what? I'll, that gonna... makes him so much better than his allegations against the president. Yeah, well, well, listen, first of all, I don't know how big that book would sell anyways. However... It's not the book sales. It's the <laughs> ten dollars to $20,000 appearance to give a speech on it. And you know what? I, I'm all for everybody you know, being able to make a living. But I still Except think, for Trump, I guess. I still think that... Well, I'm, I think he still does, actually. But, you know, I, <laughs> I, I just think that he's, he's gotten... He's taken a clever route to getting a message out, which people are starting to pay attention to. And are causing, you know, Trump's lawyers to backpedal in order to present, uh, to reconsider their case. So let's see how that plays out. Well, I'm not out. sure how that works because I saw Dershowitz yesterday. He says this doesn't even meet the standard. Yeah, blah, 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 Alan Dershowitz. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah. then, no, that's good because you're dismissing him out. But he's right? normally a Democrat, Dershowitz. Right. So yeah, that's, that, what that's makes why, him like, waffler, bang, you know, this, this, this side, <laughs> who's my friend, this way, this way. Yeah, forget it. Yeah. Oh, let me go fly on Jeffrey Epstein's plane and just get away from the everything. Yeah, I lost, he lost all credibility with me. Was he on the plane? Oh, yeah. Oh, I missed that. Well, that's the claim. The claim is that he was also a participant in this, which is why maybe she wanted to hear from Prince Andrew. Because I I think that brings down the whole house of cards. It could very well, uh, including, I don't know, uh, some in the Dem establishment. But let's talk closer to home because I've got a last uh, issue here, a topic worthy of discussion, and it's this conservative leadership race. We had Peter McKay on yesterday. Aaron O'Toole answered uh, later in the day. He was out in Calgary before a well-heeled crowd. I don't know. Are these guys distinguishing themselves from Andrew Scheer dramatically? Because uh, really, where this thing is going to be won and lost, we all know from the last round, it's in the GTA, the 905. Uh, What is it going to take to make serious inroads into the 905, Lindsay? I'm disappointed because over the last month, um, I thought the Tory party was going to actually change. And I thought there was going to be an evolution uh, and some sort of identification of who they are. And I'm not, um, you know, particular about which way they went, but I think that discussion is a very healthy discussion for that party, in fact, all parties to have. And that that discussion is now dead in the water, um, as far as I'm concerned. I think these uh, these candidates are same. It's, mm-hmm. It feels all very samesy. Right now they're using, uh, you know, marching in the Pride Parade as a wedge issue, which is an insult um, frankly, uh, and and it isn't good for their party, nor is it good for Canada. Um, so I, I think it's a missed opportunity for the Tories, um, and I'd, I really don't think they're going to have much inroads against the Liberals unless something else happens against Trudeau moving forward. Something more dramatic, which I never understood. I mean, marching in the Pride Parade has become the values test now. Well, I, actually, I, I, you know, can I ask, Lindy, I'm mm. confused because... Sorry. The, the 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 so-called progressives were very critical that Andrew Scheer wouldn't march in a pride parade. Mm-hmm. And now the two leading candidates are saying, that, or three, all three of them, including Marilyn Gladue, are saying they will. But you're saying it's a wedge issue. So I'm, I'm, I'm not actually sure I understand what you mean by it's a wedge issue. 
because McKay and O'Toole are using it against one another. They're, they're just marginalizing. So McKay said that he would march regardless. O'Toole has said he would if the police were uh, participants. So you're, you're, you're not it. happy so that suddenly all three leading candidates will will march in a, in a parade, regardless of which parade, whereas the former leader wouldn't march in one at all. I mean, I, I would have thought that actually was change in progress in a meaningful way that that the progressives would be happy with. I, I think, just think it's sorry. sorry no, I think no, it's no. lip service, to be quite honest, and I think it's a very sexy uh, narrative line. And I think that what we really want to see is that that for the conservative party to quote unquote get woke and just to have saying okay well i'm going to march in the pride parade and that's and that's going to make me have a broader appeal i i don't think canadians are buying it and i agree with lindsay i think it's more more of the same 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 and until there is some sort of foundational change or foundational policy direction that people can say oh the, the conservatives, they're becoming progressive again. They, they're a party that I can get behind, uh, that they're not sticking their head in the sands over, uh, sand over certain issues. Then and only then will I think that Canadians believe that there is a real uh, viable option. Well, is it necessary well, one, one, be... one issue at a time, perhaps? Like they, they, you know, he's been a candidate for one day. He, he, so, but I think well, it's I mean, the party should... as a whole, and I think they're all trying to grab pieces of it, and I think they really have to come together as a whole. But that's what will happen after leadership. I mean, mm. leaderships are inherently uh, confrontational during leadership. And I leadership. think that's the point, actually, is that this feels to me like they're using uh, social construct issues as the debate between two players that come election, whoever uh, whoever wins a leadership debate, it's going to be exactly the same and all these issues will be moot. They're just playing to the public right now. It doesn't feel like this is actually I, about I find, an I find this very change. typical progressive criticism of conservatives where, on one hand, they're attacked because they, they won't be inclusive and, 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 and uh, LGBTQ-friendly, and then you have leaders who are LGBTQ-friendly and say so, and now they're pilloried for having said so because they didn't do it in the right manner, or, or they're insincere for having done it now. I don't it's a classic them. example of... You can't have your cake Classic. and eat it, too. Well, I'm getting the sense that uh, maybe gonna what's have being cake. called for is a, a renaissance. Uh, we need or, 10 more minutes. Uh, a, a redefinition <laughs> of conservatism. But uh, we'll get some more time just on another occasion, another day, another great one for Talk Radio. Thank you, Kevin Gadet, Alyssa Freeman, Lindsay Broadhead, all for coming in. And to my crew, Robbie Trevisan and Mary Feely, and you. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.